As we begin this morning, let me ask you a question to ponder. And I'm sure I know the answer already, but just to get you thinking along these lines. Have you ever been in a situation in life where you didn't know what you wanted to do about a decision you needed to make or what choice you should make between two very good options? I found it ironic in light of our topic this morning that the first call I received when I was preparing this message was from an individual asking about this very issue. When you have two strong desires and both options are positive, it's extremely difficult to make a decision. It's much easier to make a decision between right and wrong, maybe not easier in our hearts if our hearts want to go wrong, but it's easier to know which way to go when it's right and wrong. But when you have two good, positive options, it's extremely difficult to know which way you should lean. And as a Christian, you find yourself confused about how you ought to pray. You're you're open to either option. You just want what's best for the Lord's glory. You just want what the Lord wants for your life. You know that either way it goes, you can't lose because there's good in both outcomes. Because the matter is on your mind and in your heart, you want to pray about it, but you're just not sure which direction you ought to direct your supplications and your thoughts in your prayers. That's exactly the situation Paul found himself in as he wrote from his incarceration in Rome. If you're not already there, turn with me please to Philippians chapter 1 as we near the end of this chapter, which I have titled A Clear Perspective on Life. I know of no other chapter in all of Scripture that in a greater way gives us a clear perspective on life, than, clearer perspective than does Philippians chapter 1. Please follow along as I read verses 12 through 26, though we've covered most of these already. Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in, in this In the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ 
by my coming to you again. Over the past several weeks, we have looked at verses 20 through 21 of this passage. So our focus this morning will be on verses 22 through 26, where Paul expressed the personal struggle that was going on in his heart and in his mind. You will remember from last week that in verses 19 through 21, he told his friends that his greatest desire in life was for Christ to be magnified in his body, regardless of the outcome of his trial in Rome. He didn't know if he would have another hearing before Caesar. He didn't know if, if that did come about, if he would be released. He didn't know if he would be executed. He didn't know if he would continue to be held unlawfully or unjustly. But regardless of what happened, he wanted to stand strong and be faithful so Christ would be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. So he says that in verse 21. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For Paul, living was Christ. Christ was not a part of his life. Christ was his life. His life revolved around knowing Christ, loving Christ, serving Christ in every facet of his life, not just in the supposedly spiritual things, but as he wrote to the Colossians, whatever you do, do heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, for you serve the Lord Christ. That was Paul's life. Whether he was making tents for financial support for himself and his team members, or whether he's preaching the gospel, regardless of what he was doing, he was serving Christ, and that was his life, to know and love and serve Christ. So if he died, his greatest longing would become a reality. He would be able to stand face to face with his Savior, whom he loved more than anything or anyone else. So he said at the end of this verse, verse 21, to die is gain. Paul looked at death as gain because it would immediately usher him into the presence of Christ, as he will explain in just a moment. Dying would free him from all limitations of his union with Christ. But he also knew that if he stayed in this world, it would give him more opportunity to serve Christ and minister to other people. So he says in verse 22, But... If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I smile every time I read this section of Philippians because it reminds me of that classic play turned into a movie, Fiddler on the Roof, where the main character, Reptavia, in his mind vacillates back and forth regarding these men that his daughters are interested in marrying. And if you're familiar with the play or with the movie, then you know how time freezes and Reptavia goes through all of these, well, on the one hand, but on the other hand, but on the one hand, and he goes back and forth in his mind. That's exactly what Paul is doing right here. He says, to die is gain. I'm ready to go. I want to go. Let's go. But, 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 if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. And so what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I, I don't know which one I really want more. And when Paul uses the phrase, live on in the flesh, he is using that phrase in a different way than he uses it elsewhere. Don't, don't take that as uh, something negative, because that's often the way that phrase is used in Scripture. Let me show you two usages of this phrase so we get it clear in our mind. Go back to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. Back to the left after 
the four Gospels, Acts, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and on account of sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, or literally to be fleshly minded, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the fleshly mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. As you can see from reading through this little section, here Paul uses the term the flesh to make a contrast between regenerate and unregenerate people, or saved, unsaved people. Those who are in the flesh in this passage are those who are controlled by their human sinful nature because nothing else is present in them such as a new nature or the Holy Spirit. Back one chapter in Romans 7, Paul uses the phrase in a similar fashion. Chapter 7, verse 18, he says, For I know that, is, that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. So here in Romans 7, Paul again uses the term flesh with negative connotations. One other example of this, look at Galatians. Turn past after Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 Paul exhorts the Galatians and us by extension, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law And then Paul goes on in verses 19 and following to enumerate or to list some of the works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, etc., etc. So here in Galatians 5, Paul again uses the term the flesh with negative connotations as he contrasts walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit. So those are examples of negative uses of this phrase, the flesh. However, there is another way this term is used, and this usage does not have negative connotations. You're in Galatians 5, back up just three chapters to Galatians chapter 2, and notice how Paul uses the phrase or the term here, Galatians 2, he says, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice how Paul uses the term here. He refers to living in the flesh as a reference to living the life that is expressed through our human bodies. Notice that this doesn't have negative connotations here. It's just a statement of living life as a human being in the human body of flesh. 2 Corinthians 10 is another example. The letter just prior to Galatians is 2 Corinthians. Just back up to the left a few pages. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. In other words, Paul is saying, even though we live our lives with the limitations of our human bodies, we live in the flesh. We don't live our lives after the impulses of the sinful nature. This is an interesting verse because the first phrase, the first usage of this phrase in this verse doesn't have negative connotations. He just talks about living in the flesh, living in the human body. But the second phrase does. We don't walk according to or war according to the flesh. One more example of this neutral usage, and this time it's from the pen of the Apostle Peter. So turn all the way over to the right near the end of the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 4. And this is a usage of the term in reference to Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Since Peter uses this term in verse 1 in connection with the Lord Jesus, it's obvious that he doesn't have in mind something sinful. He's not attributing anything sinful to Jesus. In fact, earlier in this letter, Peter affirmed the absolute sinlessness of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 22, he stated, "...who committed no sin," referring to Jesus, "...he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth." So in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Peter is referring to the fact that Jesus suffered in his flesh. That is, in his human body. Now, all of that to say, this is the way Paul is using the term in Philippians 1. He's not using it with negative connotations. Living in the flesh, like walk in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. He is talking about living life in his human body body. Now back to Philippians 1, and it'll hopefully be clear if there were any confusion or if there happened to be any confusion. He says, if I live on in the flesh, not living negatively, sinfully, if I just live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Now, some might ask the question, concerning why Paul refers to living life in the flesh or in his human body, some might ask the question, well, isn't that the only way we can live? And here's the answer. Absolutely not. No. In fact, that's the contrast Paul is making in this passage. He is contrasting living life in the flesh, 
That is, living life in these human bodies, contrasting that with being released from his human body into the conscious presence of Jesus Christ. That's the struggle in his heart. That's the struggle in his mind. He might go on living in his human body, or he might be killed, which would release him from the limitations of his human body into full, unrestricted fellowship with Jesus Christ. So in answer to the question, isn't that the only way we can live in this body? Absolutely not. We can live in this body, or we can live apart from this body in the presence of Christ. And Paul sees positives in both alternatives. But either way, he would still be alive in one sense. He would either be alive in his human body, or his body would be dead and he would be alive in the presence of Jesus Christ. When D.L. Moody was about to die, he said to a friend, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. End quote. D.L. Moody was right, and Paul knew that. So he was between a rock and a hard place when he thought about the outcome of his situation because he saw good on both sides. If he was executed, he would go be with Christ. But if he continued to live on in the flesh... This would mean fruit from his labor, according to his wording here in verse 22. Now before we leave this verse, and I I don't want to leave it too quickly, there's a great thought here in verse 22, and it is this. For Paul, living in this life was synonymous with fruitful labor for Christ. Do you see life like that? Do you see the purpose of life as being able to serve Jesus Christ? And remember, it's not merely in the supposedly religious or spiritual things. As Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 3, Whatever you do, do heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men. You serve the Lord Christ. Paul saw all of life as an opportunity to serve Christ. But then at the end of the verse he says, Yet what I shall choose I do not know. When Paul used the phrase, Yet what I shall choose, I believe he was referring to not knowing what to pray. Why do I say that? Well, because after all, the choice wasn't really up to him. He he says throughout this passage that he doesn't know if he's going to die or live. And he said that at uh, at the end of verse 20. But he was trusting God's choice in the matter, yet he didn't know which way to direct his prayers. And so in verse 23, he says, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now notice the vacillation here. Not in a negative sense of that term. Verse 21, To die is gain. I want to go. Well, but... You know, to live on in the flesh is fruitful labor for Christ. I want to stay. Well, verse 23, but departing be with Christ is far better. I want to go. He's changing back and forth as he goes through this section. Paul was hard-pressed between the two. Let me see if I can illustrate this concept. Paul's dilemma was similar to what some wives have faced at various times down through in history and even in modern times. 
Think of a committed, loving wife and mother whose husband has been gone for a long time, for whatever reason, a long, extended period of time. During his absence, she has thrived on his letters because he is the love of her life. Then one day, she gets a letter from her husband saying there's an opportunity for her to come and be with him. She's thrilled at the opportunity. But at the same time, she doesn't know what to do because she doesn't want to leave her little children. Any devoted mother can understand that struggle. And that's the kind of struggle Paul is expressing here. He longs to go be with Christ, but he hates to leave his children in the faith. The word desire here in verse 23, interestingly, is the Greek word epithumia. And most of the time in the New Testament, this word is translated lust with very negative connotations. It's a strong word that's used in the positive sense here in this verse. Paul strongly desired to depart and be with Christ. Paul uses this same word, depart, in 2 Timothy 4.6 to refer to his impending death. It's also used in 2 Corinthians 5.8, which we'll look at in just a few minutes. It's, this is a really a fascinating Greek word with multiple uses in Greek literature. If you, if you compare the usages of this word in, in Greek literature, it just really fills in the, the various meanings and shades of meaning in this word. Let me mention some of them to you and think about Paul choosing this particular word to describe his desire to depart. This particular term was used for taking down a tent when breaking camp. Now that fits the analogy. Paul knew he was only passing through and that his body was only a temporary tent until he received his new glorified body for eternity. This word was also used by sailors to refer to putting a ship in the water that had been dry docked. You can see the parallels. Paul longed to be loosed from this life to set sail into his eternal home. This word was also used to refer to freeing a prisoner from chains and bars. What an appropriate parallel. Paul was literally a prisoner in the legal sense of that term, but he was also a prisoner of the limitations of his human body, according to Romans 7. You remember what he wrote there in Romans 7. What I want to do, I don't always do. And what I don't want to do, I find myself doing at times. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So death would free Paul from all those limitations. The same word was also used to refer to unloading an animal of its heavy burden. And if you don't think Paul carried around a lot of burdens, just read 2 Corinthians 11. I can't imagine carrying the burdens Paul carried, but he knew that someday those burdens would be lifted from him as he went to be with his Lord and Savior. This word was also used to refer to solving a problem, a dilemma in life, solving a difficult question. That fits this context. All of Paul's questions would be answered when he stood face to face with his Savior because then he would know as he was known, according to 1 Corinthians 13. So those are some of the ways this particular Greek word was used in Greek literature. And the Holy Spirit of God directed Paul to use this specific word right here in this text. So all those thoughts are wrapped up in this word, depart. 
Paul says, I have this strong desire to depart. Paul longed to depart this world and be with Christ. By the way, this passage, Philippians 1, 22 and 23, this passage teaches us that there are only two places a believer can be. Only two. In our flesh, that is our bodies, or with Jesus Christ. That's it. Those are the only options. There's no such thing as soul sleep for the believer. The soul does not sleep. The body does. The Bible frequently uses the term sleep to refer to death. But watch this. It's not talking about our souls. It's talking about our bodies. That is such a beautiful expression for the Christian who has died, isn't it? Death is something peaceful. It's, it's nothing to dread. It's just like falling asleep. In John 11, when Lazarus died, Jesus told the disciples he was sleeping. In Acts 7, 59 and 60, the stoning of Stephen is described this way. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul referred to a group of believers who had fallen asleep or died. In 1 Corinthians 15, 18, he used the phrase again. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he used the phrase again to refer to the Thessalonian Christians who had died. So this is a common expression when referring to the death of a Christian. But, please hear me, there is no passage in the Bible that teaches soul sleep. The soul doesn't sleep. The body does. The body sleeps in the ground during the time between death and resurrection. But the soul or the spirit is eternally, always, unendingly conscious, awake, alert. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you are a Christian... If you are a child of God, when your body dies, your soul or spirit or inner person goes immediately to be with the Lord. That's why here in Philippians 1.23, Paul said that death was simply departing to be with Christ. In Acts 7.59, which I quoted a moment ago, when Stephen was about to die, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen knew that the moment he died, his spirit would go to be with Jesus Christ. And you will remember that Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. The thief's body was buried just like the body of Jesus. But his inner man went to be with Jesus. And where was Jesus? Well, we know where Jesus was. We know that he went to heaven to be with the Father because his very last words on the cross were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The the body is asleep in the sense that one day it will be resurrected, but the soul does not sleep. And related to this issue, it's important to realize that there's also no such thing biblically as purgatory either. There's no such thing as this in-between state, this waiting, uh, this waiting period. There is no holding place for the Christian. None. 
You are either in your body or you are in the presence of Christ if you are a Christian. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go back to the left just to, just to reinforce this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here the teaching of Paul is explicit uh, on this subject. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, it's the imagery being used there to refer to the body, we know that if our earthly house or earthly dwelling, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we, and by the way, Paul's point here in this section, and we're going to build to the point that ties in with Philippians, but his point is that we are not going to exist in eternity as spirit beings forever. Now, there will be a time when we first go to be at the Lord if we die, and it's not with the, the translation or the, the rapture, where we will be spirit beings, souls, or whatever John saw in Revelation 6, the souls of those who have been beheaded under the altar. But Paul's point here is that eventually we're going to have an eternal body. We're, going to, we're not going to be unclothed for all eternity. We will have an eternal body. He says in verse 3, If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's how we live today in this body. It's by faith, not by sight. The day will come, it will be sight, not faith. And so he says, as he summarizes this section of, what, of this part of the letter, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That's the same thought found in Philippians 1. You are either in your body as a Christian, or if you are absent from your body, you are present with the Lord. There is no time that a believer will be out of the conscious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. There is no time that a believer will be out of the conscious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are either in the presence of Christ here and now in the limitation of our bodies, or we are in the full, unrestricted presence of Christ in heaven. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 sums it up well when it says, Christ died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. That says it. We live with him whether we're dead or alive. If it's alive here in the flesh, it's with the limitations. If we're sleeping, that is the body is dead, then we're living together with Christ without those human restrictions. Now back to Philippians chapter 1. Paul lived in union with Christ, but that union was restricted because of the limitations of his flesh. 
So he looked forward with great anticipation to his departure to be with Christ where he could experience the fullness of his presence. And that's why he says at the end of verse 23 here in Philippians 1, which is far better. That's a very rare construction in the Greek text because it's a triple comparative. Being with Christ is far, far better. It's not just better. It's not just far better. It is far, far better. But, but, Paul didn't want to leave his spiritual children. Verse 24, nevertheless, here he goes, back to the other side. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Let me tell you something. That that is a mark of a spiritual man. Paul placed his desire, remember, epithumia, strong Greek word for desire. Paul placed his desire below their needs in his priority list. That's a godly man. He placed their needs above what he would prefer, and not just prefer, what he desired passionately. What a vivid illustration of chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others more important than himself. Paul modeled that. The Philippians needed Paul. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, the one apostle to the Gentiles. Peter, the apostle to the Jews, and, and the other disciples were more focused on Jewish people in their ministry. There was one apostle to the Gentiles, and it was the apostle Paul. And he understood that unique role. Philippians were Gentiles for the most part. And so Paul said, man, if I leave, the Lord has put me in this position as the apostle of the Gentiles, then they have, they, they have no, no apostle to, to minister to them. The Philippians needed Paul. They were a great group of people, but, but Paul was unique in his role to Gentile believers in the first century. They needed the ministry of this great apostle in their lives. And Paul felt that responsibility. So this was his dilemma. Think of it this way. Here was his dilemma. The choice between Christ and Christ's church. He passionately loved Christ, and he passionately loved the Lord's church. And the result was that he was in this dilemma. Verse 25, he says... And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your joy, for your progress and joy of faith. This, I believe, expressed Paul's personal conviction. What I mean is, if this had been a revelation from God that Paul was going to remain, then Paul wouldn't have said what he said earlier in verse 20 about maybe living or dying. He didn't know by revelation that he would be left here on the earth, but his personal conviction was that God had more for him to do. And Paul was thrilled to be able to be used of God for the progress and joy of other believers' faith, as he says at the end of this verse. It's interesting to note from this verse, please don't miss this, that spiritual growth and progress are linked together with joy. Do you see that? They go hand in hand. One commentator I consulted said the two nouns can hardly be separated. They go hand in hand. Spiritual growth and progress are linked together with joy. Now here's the the significance of that. 
Sometimes people wonder why they don't have joy in life. And oftentimes, oftentimes, it's traced right back to the fact that they are not growing spiritually. They've leveled out. They're coasting, or maybe they're even sliding the wrong direction, backsliding. Spiritual progress and joy go hand in hand. And Paul knew that. So he looked forward to more ministry in the lives of his dear friends whom he loved so deeply. In fact, he says in verse 26 that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul really wanted to see these people. I mean, he had this epithumia, this strong desire to depart, be with Christ, but he really wanted to see these people. He had not seen them in five years. He knew that their reunion would be the source of much mutual joy and much benefit for the Philippians as he ministered in their midst and shared with them the things that Jesus had shared with him by divine revelation. Paul wanted to stay on earth long enough for that to become a reality. He, didn't want to, he wanted to go be with Christ, but he didn't want to go before he had a chance to be unite, reunited with these dear, precious people. And the evidence seems to point to the fact that it eventually happened. From the best we can tell, Paul was released from this imprisonment either the next year or the next, 62, A.D. 62 or 63. Rome burned in A.D. 64, so it's doubtful that if he hadn't been released by that time that he would have been released after that happened. So Paul was released sometime after he wrote this letter, but then he eventually was re-imprisoned and beheaded. God granted him the opportunity to live another three, four, maybe five years after he wrote these words. And what did he do during this time? What did he do during these three, four, five years? He did exactly what he said he wanted to do in verse 22. Labor for Christ. Let me piece together what happened from the various passages in the New Testament. There's no way we can turn to all of these because it's a little phrase here out of this letter, a little phrase out of that letter where he gives us some indications of his, his, his uh, uh, travels and so forth. So let me just piece it together for you. Immediately after his release, it seems that he sent Timothy to Philippi with the news of his release. Then he apparently started on a journey to Asia Minor, that would be modern-day Turkey, And on the way, he left Titus on the island of Crete to establish the churches there and to strengthen their leadership. He then arrived in Ephesus, traveled on to Colossae, where he had never been before, and then returned to Ephesus where he met Timothy. Timothy brought news from Philippi. While there in Ephesus, it seems that Paul had to deal with two bad leaders, really bad leaders, named Hymenaeus and Alexander, And then he left Timothy to deal with the rest of the leadership issues in Ephesus. Paul then went on to Macedonia from where he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus after his release from this imprisonment. He asked Titus to meet him in Nicopolis where he spent the winter. He then left for Asia Minor again, modern-day Turkey, and had to leave Trophimus sick in Miletus. He then went to Troas to visit Carpus, And it was there he left his cloak. If you're familiar with 2 Timothy, when he's in a dungeon, he asked Timothy to bring him his cloak. He's cold. Left it at Troas. It may have been there that Paul was arrested for the second time, taken back to Rome. 
We don't know for sure where he was arrested the second time. We do know about his first arrest. It happened in Jerusalem. Second one, we're not sure. But we do know he ended up in Rome again as a prisoner. This time, not under house arrest. This time in a dungeon, a cold dungeon. Only Luke was with him on this occasion in Rome because Demas had forsaken him. So Paul urged Timothy to come to him and to bring Mark, John Mark, the same man who had defected on the first missionary journey, the same man uh, over whom Paul and Barnabas had such a strong disagreement that they split and went their separate ways and each took a different missionary partner. Paul urged Timothy to come to him in Rome, bring John Mark. We don't know if Timothy and Mark arrived in time to see Paul before the axe head flashed in the sunlight and the beloved apostle Paul was beheaded. But we do know this. We do know that when Paul was executed, the passionate longing of his heart became a reality. He saw his Savior in unrestricted, full, blazing glory. His burdens were lifted as he was ushered into the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a moment that must have been for Paul. What can we take from this passage for our own lives? As I pondered that, thought about that, I thought of a little poem. It was turned into a song. I haven't heard it for years now, but it's a great little poem, song. It says this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That says it well. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head in closing this morning, you have probably noticed that we've somewhat had a a theme of death running through our service off and on. That's because of this passage here in Philippians 1, where Paul talks about death and His desire to die, to depart and be with Christ, but his desire to live and stay on in the flesh and have fruitful labor. So as we bow together in closing, I want to encourage you once again to think about death. It's not a thought that we tend to think about. But think about the reality of death. One day you will die and you will be ushered into eternity. If you're a Christian, if you've received Jesus Christ, As your Lord and Savior, you will be ushered into the very presence of Christ himself. Beloved, think of that reality. Standing face to face with Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian, if you're not a child of God, Scripture is clear that the moment you die, you are alienated from Christ in torment. That's not a threat. It's not manipulation. It's not sort of emotionalism to try to get you to do something that your heart really isn't inclined to do. It's just a fact. It's what Scripture teaches. So you need to repent. Humble yourself before God. Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you are a child of God, you need to make sure you're living accordingly because one day you will stand face to face with your Savior. Father, that's a reality that sadly we do not think about nearly as often as we should. This life has such a pull on us that even when we talk about standing face to face with the Lord Jesus, it's almost as if it's a fairy tale for us, something that's 
un quite unreal, and yet nothing could be more real. Nothing could be more certain. Use the reality of eternity, the reality of death, to minister to our hearts, to cause us to live in light of such realities. For those present without Christ, may they this very moment humble themselves and receive Jesus Christ by faith, letting go of anything that is, and anything that they would hold on to is trivial in comparison to trusting Christ. So may they turn to him wholeheartedly. And for those of us who do know him, may the reality of what Paul wrote here in Philippians 1 encourage us, refocus us, challenge us, so that we can say, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.